Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. to another episode of Talking Tudors. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me. I'd like to start by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support my podcast on Patreon and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a big difference. If you love the podcast and you never miss an episode, I invite you to join the Talking Tudors patron family. Visit patreon.com slash talkingtudors for more information. Join the Talking Tudors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll have access to patron-only monthly giveaways. February's prize is a copy of The Queen's Frog Prince, The Courtship of Elizabeth I and the Duke of Anjou by David Lee. Thank you so much to the author for sponsoring this wonderful prize. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. I would absolutely love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tudors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag #ILoveTalkingTudors. Now, on to today's episode. I'm excited that joining me on the show to talk about Elizabethan rebellions is Helen Harrison. Helen studied at the University of Northumbria in Newcastle, achieving both a BA and an MA in history before going on to complete a master's in library management. Her passion for Tudor history started when studying for her A-levels and completing a module on Tudor rebellions. Helen's master's dissertation focused on portrayals of Anne Boleyn through the centuries from contemporary letters to modern TV and film adaptations. Now she writes two blogs, one Tudor history and one book related, and loves visiting royal palaces and snuggling up with the book or embroidery project. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of John Sayles. Thank you. 
Welcome to Talking Judas, Helene. How are you? Hi, I'm really good, Natalie. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm very excited and a little nervous to talk Judas with you. Oh, I'm excited too. Don't worry. So let's just begin with an introduction. So maybe could you just introduce yourself to our listeners and just tell us a little bit about you and your background? I'm Helen Harrison. I'm currently in the cold north of England. Um, I'm a writer, researcher and blogger. I've got three degrees, um, two in history, one in library management. And well, my interest in the Tudors started with my A-levels really, and it sort of developed from there. I started my blog when I finished my undergraduate degree, feeling a bit bereft, I guess, of study. And it's just sort of snowballed from there, really. And I've just published my first book, which is very, very exciting. Can't quite believe it's happening. That is very exciting. Congratulations. And we are here, of course, to talk about the the subject of your new book. So it's called Elizabethan Rebellions. What inspired you to work on this particular topic? My A-levels were kind of my first experience, I guess, of Tudor history. I hadn't studied a lot before that. And we did a module on Tudor rebellions, so covering from Henry VII all the way through Elizabeth. And when the chance came up to write again about this topic, it just inspired me to do a bit more research and sort of delve into the primary sources a bit more than what I had before. And I distinctly remember doing my A-levels, getting Perkin, Warbeck and Lambert Simnel mixed up, who of course were the pretenders under Henry VII. So coming back to the topic was quite interesting and kind of looking at it with a lot more years of research behind me meant I had different viewpoints to what I did in my A-level. So it was interesting to go back and explore some of that that I hadn't looked at maybe for a good 10 years or so. Yes, it's interesting how our ideas keep evolving. I totally agree with you. So let's talk about some of those rebellions and conspiracies that Elizabeth faced early in her reign. Yeah, so I always think the timing of these is quite interesting because... The first real rebellion was the Northern Rising in 1569, which happened within a year of Mary, Queen of Scots, arriving in England. And I've always thought it's a bit coincidental that the timing of that, that there was nothing for the first kind of 10, 11 years of Elizabeth's reign. And then all of a sudden it sort of explodes out. I kind of think as well, the rebellions are split into sort of two phases. But the second phase is only really a single rebellion. And the first grouping is all sort of around Mary, Queen of Scots and kind of her claims to the succession. And the Northern Rising was sort of the biggest rebellion of Elizabeth's reign. Um, The others were sort of a lot smaller and more plotting behind the scenes. So the Northern Rising was led by the Earls of Northumberland and Westmoreland very much uh, rather like the pilgrimage of grace under Henry VIII that was very based in the north of England which was sort of this Catholic stronghold and obviously Mary Queen of Scots came from Scotland she came through the north of England so it's all involved with Mary wanting to claim the throne but then wanting a freedom and it's all very tied together the northern rising was a very popular revolt very open rebellion against the monarch and they aimed to rescue Mary Queen of Scots from her very early imprisonment at this point but she was actually moved out of the way of the rebels so they couldn't actually get hold of her and one of the things that I liked is there's a kind of local connection to me which is Durham Cathedral which is just south of where I live is um 
kind of the center, I guess, they destroyed the Book of Common Prayer and reinstated the mass in the cathedral. So there's a lot of overtones of kind of religious reform and going back to the old ways, which I find very interesting. I've always enjoyed studying the Reformation, so it was quite interesting to see it from a more local point of view, I suppose. Yes, you suddenly do have a lot of history just on your doorstep, which is very lucky. So you've talked a little bit about some of the people involved, obviously, Northumberland, Westmoreland, and the fact that it was motivated by religious factors. But do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Maybe some other people that became involved in rebellions against Elizabeth and what their motivations were as well? Well, the next rebellion kind of followed fairly quickly on the heels of the Northern Rising, which was the Rodolfi plot, which was 1571. So we're only talking two years later. But I think the main thing to focus on with the Rodolfi plot is that it came very quickly on the heels of a bull of excommunication from the Pope, which excommunicated Elizabeth meant it was the Pope was effectively telling people she needs to be overthrown. And I think that kind of pushed people into rebelling against her particularly, obviously, the Catholics. And Roberto de Rodolfi was, well, he was from Italy, and he kind of spoke to the Spanish and the French and the Pope and tried to get them all into a group together to act against Elizabeth. It didn't work. (laughs) There was never actually any invasion or anything. They couldn't seem to agree on what they wanted to do. And then the plot was discovered And there's always been a question, I guess, over Rodolfi's role in the plot and whether was he an agent provocateur or was he really in the plot? Because he kind of got away scot-free in the end. He sort of left England and he would end up being a senator in Florence. So he really kind of got away without any repercussions at all. And the plot just sort of faded away, I guess. So in terms of who Elizabeth is turning to for advice during these periods of turmoil, of rebellion, can you tell us a little bit about who she's asking for advice and who she's getting support of during this time? Well, the person Elizabeth probably depended on the most was William Cecil, who became first Baron Burley. Obviously, he had homes at the likes of Theobalds and based in London as well. And he'd been with Elizabeth from before she was queen. He was kind of working for her when she was at Hatfield, when her sister was queen. And he remained with her all the way until his death. And I always think she kind of looked on him a bit like a father figure. She went to him for advice and she never seemed afraid to talk to him about anything. Whereas she kept herself, I feel, quite back from a lot of people. She didn't reveal what she really thought. But with Cecil, she seems to have really just talked to him and in a way that maybe she didn't with a lot of others. And it was an interesting relationship because she, Elizabeth had a temper, as we know, but she never really banished Burley from court. The only time she did, I believe, was in the wake of Mary Queen of Scots execution, when she was so angry with everyone that Mary had been killed. But Other courtiers kind of were banished and welcomed back and it kept going, but that never really happened with Burley, which I think is really interesting and just shows how deep that relationship was between them. Another kind of key person, I guess, was Francis Walsingham, although 
for sort of the Northern Rising, he wasn't really part of wider court circles at that point, but he became crucial to uncovering plots against Elizabeth, worked very closely with Burley. They seemed to have a very close working relationship, which was also interesting researching it, how many letters there are between the two of them and reports of them kind of being in secret meetings. And so, yeah, I think they were the kind of the crucial two in helping Elizabeth through rebellions, really. And sort of looking at the government's response, how they wanted to portray it to the people as well. Okay, and Elizabeth obviously wasn't the first uh, Tudor to face rebellion and conspiracy. So during your research, what lessons did you find that Elizabeth learned from her father, from her grandfather, her siblings that maybe helped her through this time? Yeah, I think. Some of the crucial ones were the Lambert Simnel and Perkin Warbeck rebellions against Henry VII because they both obviously claimed the throne as other people. Lambert Simnel pretended to be Warbeck and Warwick, sorry, and Warbeck pretended to be the youngest of the princes in the tower, Richard, Duke of York. So it was slightly different in that way. But Mary, Queen of Scots, was a real threat to Elizabeth because she did have a very good claim to the English throne, arguably better than Elizabeth herself, which again echoes kind of Warbeck and Simnel, who they were imitating, because the Earl of Warwick and Richard, Duke of York, would have had a better claim to the throne than Henry Tudor. So I think Elizabeth must have sort of read about or hearsay how Henry VII had dealt with those, and he was very merciful towards both of them. Simnel went to work in the royal kitchens and ended up being working as a falconer. Warbeck was initially allowed to live at court after he was captured. And it was only with his escape and then questions over the marriage of Catherine of Aragon and Prince Arthur that Henry VII realised he needed to act in order for that marriage to go ahead and to protect the future of the dynasty. And I think in the end, Elizabeth only acted against Mary, Queen of Scots, when she wasn't left with another choice. Her council and her parliament were pushing for Mary's execution, and Elizabeth knew these rebellions would keep happening until Mary was gone and wasn't a threat anymore. I know it's hard to get sort of behind the the mask of queenship with Elizabeth and kind of get into her internal space in a way, but what effect do you think the rebellions had on her personally and then on also on her rule as well? Um, Well, I think Elizabeth, she was an unlikely queen. And I think that always kind of stuck with her because she had a brother and a sister ahead of her in the line of succession when Henry VIII died. And there was no reason to think one or both of them wouldn't go on to marry and have children. So in 1547, when Henry VIII died, I think Elizabeth never really expected that she would become queen. But then when Edward VI died and then Mary I was struggling to get pregnant, Elizabeth obviously thought, well, this could happen now. It's looking unlikely that there's going to be anyone else. I think the rebellions, they must have frightened her because she realised that although she was on the throne and seemingly secure, there were all these other threats, people with rival claims who could topple her. And... There was still a lot of religious division as well. Elizabeth's religious settlement in 1559 was trying to tread a middle way and it didn't really satisfy either the Catholics or the Protestants. 
So there was always going to be some kind of pushback from both sides on how far was she going to go in which direction. And then the bull of excommunications, Regnans in Excelsis, just sort of polarised the Catholics into action against her because they knew that the Pope's excommunicated her. He's obviously not convinced that Elizabeth is going to return to the Catholic fold. And talk to us about the final significant rebellion that Elizabeth dealt with before her death in 1603. The Essex Rebellion is kind of a singular Tudor rebellion because there wasn't a wider purpose to it. It was Robert Devereux, second Earl of Essex, had kind of replaced his stepfather, Robert Dudley, who was said to be Elizabeth's great love, as her favourite. And after a disastrous episode in Ireland, I think he sort of lost all sense of reason. Um, He'd made a peace with the Earl of Tyrone, um, having been told by Elizabeth he needed to defeat these people by force. And... Essex was effectively told, don't return to the court. You stay in Ireland and you sort this out. But one of the, I always think it's one of the most scandalous things of Elizabeth's reign was when Essex returned to England against all advice and instructions. And he entered Elizabeth's bedchamber at Nonsuch Palace before she had her wig, her makeup, her gown, before she bore all of the marks of queenship. And Elizabeth didn't really know what to do. She didn't know if Essex had come with an army, if he was alone or what was going on. So she managed to keep her cool, which I always think is must have been very difficult for her to do. But Essex was questioned and arrested the next day. And then he was sort of tried and put under house arrest. But he managed to get this group of, I guess, friends and misfits around him, one of whom was the Earl of Southampton. And they planned to get to the Queen at Whitehall Palace in London and force her to effectively pardon Essex. So there was just a group of sort of misfits and sort of hangers-on who marched through London to try and reach Whitehall and the Queen. But there was actually a scuffle and legend says that Essex escaped with a hole in his hat and his page was killed but they came they retreated back to Essex's house and found that the privy councillors they'd taken effectively prisoner and locked in the house had been released by another one of their co-conspirators who'd got cold feet so Essex was declared a traitor and he surrendered so all in all it was a fairly short rebellion the rebellion itself was only about a day long yes it's a peculiar event that one I have to say (laughs) very strange behavior so are you working on anything new at the moment um yes I'm working on my second book for pen and sword at the minute which is on executing the Tudor nobility so I'm looking at I'm looking at how the nobility became entangled in treason so much during sort of the Tudor century, because I've always found it ever since I discovered this, that there were actually no dukes in England between 1572 and 1623, which is kind of a good 50 year period. And it just seemed, why, why did this happen? So I wanted to look into it a bit more and how kind of the ranks of the nobility shrunk so much, I guess. So I've I'm looking at kind of 11 different cases of treason and execution 
um, across the entire Tudor period. That's fascinating. I actually just uh, recorded an episode not long ago with Dr. Dan Gosling about treason um, in the 16th century. So if anyone's listening and wants to have a little listen to that, that was really, really interesting to see how the treason laws changed, in particular during, of course, the reign of Henry VIII. And, yes, and so I'm, I... I'm hoping this year to get down to the National Archives for their exhibition, but I haven't booked it yet. We'll see how that goes. Absolutely. I'm hoping to get there too, but I have to travel a lot further than you, that's for sure. (laughs) Yes. Okay, well, this has been so interesting. But at the end of our episodes, we like to play what we call 10 to go. So 10 questions just to get to know you a little bit better. So the first one, what's something that you love about where you live? I really enjoy being so close to the coast and the beach. I'm only about a five minute walk from the coast. And I never appreciated it when I was younger. I'm starting to appreciate it now. I'm getting a bit older, I have to say, yeah. That sounds lovely. And what about, I know you read a lot of books. <laughs> what was the last book that you that you read? Um, well, I'm currently finishing The Witch's Heart by Genevieve Gornacek, which is a fictional novel based around Norse mythology. That sounds good. So you read quite lots of different genres then? Or yes, this was, this was one for my book club, actually. So I'm cool. a bit behind finishing it. Wonderful. And what do you like to do to relax and unwind? I love to cross-stitch. I sew a lot. And it's just a nice way to unwind after writing or working. Yeah, it sounds like a very Tudor pastime as well. So that's, that's yes. excellent. <laughs> and what about a place, an inspirational place that you like to visit? Hampton Court has got to be my absolute favourite. I'm hoping to take a friend there within the next couple of years. We'll see if we can get it arranged, but it's just so atmospheric and it's just a wonderful place to just wander around and soak in the atmosphere and just spend a lot of time. Absolutely. I know people often say Hampton Court. It is definitely a favourite. So what was a favourite childhood book or a childhood toy of yours? Oh, that one's difficult childhood book I used to love it's called the jolly postman and it had a lot of kind of puzzles and fold out bits in it I used to love reading that yeah I know the one where that got little envelopes and you take things out that's super cute yeah and what about what's an ideal Sunday morning for you what does that consist of oh it would be a, a lie-in with a book and my two cats curled up on my lap maybe an episode of QI thrown in as well and what about a new skill that you would like to learn I'd like to reteach myself knitting. I used to be able to knit. My gran taught me when I was little and it's just sort of fallen out. I'd love to be able to do that again, I guess, compliment my cross stitch. Yes. Yeah. And it's quite popular now again, isn't it? Like people do knitting clubs and all that kind of thing. That would be good. What about um, in terms of music? What music do you enjoy listening to? I listen to a lot of musical theatre. I love going to musicals, visiting the theatre. Would have to be six the musical. It's definitely right up there. I'm going to see it again in July, so I'm very excited about that. So is that the um, second time you're seeing it? Yes, it is. I actually go and see it the day after my second book goes to the publisher. So that'll be a perfect way to celebrate. Absolutely. It's fantastic. And lucky last question, what is something that you're looking forward to this year? Oh, um, six the musical. And um, I guess just talking more about my book and as much as it makes me nervous I do do enjoy you know talking about it and just discussing history generally I've got 
a good friend who actually helped me edit my book who we just sort of nerd out a bit and I'm just looking forward to doing more of that and just spending more time with my friends that's wonderful and you said this was the first podcast you've done and you've done incredibly well so I'm sure I'm going to be hearing you on lots of other podcasts very soon as well and just one more thing before I let you get on with your evening the tutor takeaway so this is something for our listeners to go off and explore after the episode so do you have a tutor takeaway for us Yes, I do, Natalie. I would have to say British History Online, which is a website that hosts a lot of state papers, the letters and papers of Henry VIII. It's what got me into looking at primary sources in the first place. So if you're new to that kind of thing, it's a great place to start. You can just trawl through hundreds of pages if you so wish. It's just it's a great resource, especially during COVID when people couldn't get out. Um, it still means you can still access things. You don't have to go to an archive. Absolutely. Completely agree with you. I've lost many, many hours, days, weeks <laughs> trawling through yes. those things. It's um, easy to do. It's easy to do. Absolutely. Well, I wish you all the best of luck with this book and, the, and of course, the writing of your new book. And I look forward to hearing all about it. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk tutors with us. Thank you very much, Natalie. It's been great. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Mm-hmm.